All right, guys. We're going to go ahead and get started. Today is our last installment of the Mark series. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> the Mark series. We've been in the summer. We have gone through, I think, nine. Nine to ten weeks of Mark, and it has been awesome. This summer has been awesome, even though we've been doing COVID together. And so it is just, it's going to be a great experience to uh, end together what we started. If you remember, the Gospel of Mark starts with the phrase, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. And so what better way to end than, I want, I want to start the ending with a question. Um, we're going into the, uh, the summer we're going into the fall. We're going into school. Some of us are excited. Some of us are not. Um, you've heard the gospel. We've been walking through it all summer long. Um, I just kind of want to start as we go through this to reflect. Um, how are you going to be trying to live out what we've been studying all summer long? How are you going to be living a gospel-centered life this fall? I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to dig into the survey section, and then Justin Ebert is going to come up afterwards and finish this out. So, pray with me. Dearly Father, thank you so much for these people. Um, God, thank you so much for the community of believers that you put around us. Um, God, thank you so much for allowing us to go through your word and to remind us who you are and to call us to a gospel-centered life. God, to call us to true discipleship. Um, I pray as we are going into the fall that you would just bring up the lessons and the reflections and the challenges that you've given us uh, this summer and that you would just help us live it out. Um, God, we are called to be people after your name who honor you based on your character. I ask that you'd be with us and give us strength to do that. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, so Mark 15. Go ahead and open your Bibles there. Um, Mark 15, if you remember last week, Scott uh, started us off with a discussion of what it means to have victory. Um, He talked through the teachings of Gethsemane uh, with Peter's denial and with the Sanhedrin. And his idea that he was trying to get us to see in the book of Mark was victory through suffering. We are picking up directly where Scott Scott left off, makes sense, um, with the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin had a um, trial scene with uh, Jesus where they slap him on the face. They're saying, prophesy, and they're accusing him of blasphemy. And they ask him directly, they say, are you the Messiah? And he says in verse 62, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That is a quote taken directly out of Daniel 7. You can go look it up later. Jesus shoots him straight. He says, I am exactly who you're saying I am. And they accuse him of blasphemy and being a false prophet. And then we go straight into chapter 15 with Pilate. They accuse him of blasphemy. They hand him over to the Roman governor, Pilate, who is over uh, Jerusalem. And Pilate asks him a second question. He asks, are you the king of the Jews? And this time, instead of giving him a direct, a direct shot, Jesus says, if, if you say so. And Pilate's like, like, what? What do you mean, if you say so? He, and he says, 
Aren't you going to answer me? I have your life in your hand, in my hands, and Jesus doesn't answer anything. He says in verse 5 that Pilate was amazed because Jesus gave no answer. Um, this is the political side. He's already been tried of the religious um, blasphemy, at least from their standards. And Pilate goes straight from there. Other Gospels give you kind of a, a background into some of the convictions, some of the wrestling that Pilate had. Um, it, Mark goes straight into the trial. Um, he takes Jesus on one side and Barabbas on another. Um, he says, I'm going to give you one of these, um, whoever, whichever one you want. Who do you want me to release to you? Um, this is one of the irony moments. I feel like we've been doing a pretty good job of showing you irony through the Gospel of Mark. Um, this is one of those moments where I don't think Mark... I don't think this was Mark doing it, um, but it was just just irony of the situation, if you will. Um, we have Jesus who three times, sorry, two times earlier at his baptism and at his transfiguration, the heavens open up and God says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This is my beloved son who I'm well pleased with. So we have the son of the father right here and then we have Barabbas, which translates Bar Abbas, Bar Abba, son of the father. So we have the son of the father, and we have the son of the father. And the people, he gives it to the people, he says, who do you want to choose in this moment? And they chose Barabbas, this insurrectionist um, who is rightly accused of the crimes that he's doing. Like he, he tried to overthrow the Roman government, so at the very least... The, the crimes that he is committed are, are true, you know. Jesus, who they're accusing of being a false messiah, it's weird, it's like a, a true accusation, but they're using it in mocking terms. He's the king of the Jews, laughing as they say it. Um, but he hasn't done nothing to warrant his, his arrest. And this is one of those moments, like... I don't believe that in life we get the same kind of like in your face. Um, are you going to choose Jesus? Are you going to choose Barabbas moments? And, and they chose Barabbas and they chose wrong. Um, but in life, especially coming up in the fall, you're going to have a lot of moments where you're going to be able to choose between Jesus or something else. Jesus, maybe not a false uh, insurrectionist, but it'll typically be some sort of Jesus or yourself. Jesus or what you want. And the people in the story, in chapter 15, they chose wrong. And what I want us to see, what Mark is having us see, that even though they chose wrong, God's will was still done. God gave them what they wanted, and His will was still done regardless of their support, regardless of their um, hindrance. So, once again, the question, if God is going to give you what you want, do you want to live a gospel-centered life? Are you going to be seeking that? Because typically, like at least right now, God will give you what you want. Do you want to live a gospel-centered life this fall? Going straight from there into the death, sorry, into um, the flogging, Pilate, they, they shout, crucify him. He says he's done nothing wrong. 
Um, they shout, crucify him all the louder. And so Pilate just gives him over to the soldiers to be flogged. Um, it says, the soldiers led him away. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put purple robes on him. They flog him. And they strike him on the face. And they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. Another ironic moment in Mark. They're saying these true titles about Jesus in the wrong spirit. The first seven chapters of Mark, we've been asking this question, who is this man? They've given him different kind of, of titles. Is he Elijah? Is he the prophet who's going to come? Is he the Messiah? And there's always like, oh, I don't know. Is he, the demons are yelling he's the Son of God, but no one has ever got it right. Here we've got a right title said in the wrong spirit. And they mock him, and they strip him, and they divide his clothes. Later they divide his clothes. Um, I just want to remind you um, of an earlier moment in Mark 10. This is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. So Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10, coming from that first session, um, we get three predictions of Jesus' death. He gives them back to back. Three predictions. He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests. I'm going to be rejected by the people who are supposed to be the ones who accept me. And it finally gets this crescendo. He's like, not only am I going to die, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock me. They're going to flog me. They're going to spit on me. And they're going to kill me. This is a direct fulfillment of what Jesus said earlier. Just a reminder that that section of Scripture wasn't just three random predictions that Mark just threw in. It was in the context of discipleship. Each time Jesus gave a prediction of his death, which we're seeing fulfilled right here, he gave a prediction and he says, he gave a correction of what true discipleship was. Like, you think greatness is this, but greatness is service. You think greatness is lording it over everyone else, but greatness is becoming the most humble out of all of us. Um, you think greatness is um, becoming something worthwhile, but Jesus says that greatness in chapter 8 is picking up your cross, maybe not necessarily a little cross, which he's doing right now, but picking up your cross and following me. True discipleship is gospel-centered, cross-shaped life. And this is what Jesus is enacting right now. So they mocked him and stripped him, exactly what he said was going to happen in chapter 10. And they said they let him out to crucify him. Another man carried his cross, um, the father of Alexander and Rufus, which is one of those cool nods, like, a, by the way, you can go look up Alexander and Rufus, it's his, their father. Um, they crucified him, they divided his clothes, casting lots to decide which one would get. It was nine in the morning when this happened. And then they start yelling insults at him. So one of the things that Scott told us in Mark 14 was the uh, section where Jesus says, all these temples, you see, you see the temple, you see the beautiful stones, it's going to fall. Not one is going to stand on another. They are turning that and they're mocking him. They're saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. You, you claimed that you're going to destroy the temple, and you're, here you are dying out, like dying in front of us. And then the chief priests and the rabbis, I actually, I kind of love this one, okay? 
Uh, I'll tell you why in a second. 31, it says, He saved others, but cannot save Himself. They're mocking Him with that. They're saying, Jesus saved, you saved others, but you cannot even save yourself. And what they don't know is they are quoting Him. In Mark 10.45, He says, The Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to give His life as a ransom for many. He saved others, but cannot save Himself. This is almost a direct gospel statement said in mockery at His death. Irony. And then I'm going to give you guys a discussion question that I want you to talk about here in a second um, of this next part. It says, When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So noon to three, there is darkness. Um, if you if you've heard the story of Exodus, should should be reminding us a little bit of that. So Exodus, there are plagues. God is going to war against the nation and against the uh, gods of Egypt. And the ninth plague is darkness. And just before, so the ninth plague is darkness, and that is preceded by the death of the firstborn, where God takes retribution against the nation of Egypt for killing His firstborn children, which happened at the beginning of Exodus. He turns it right back on them, and he kills their firstborn. The only way you got out of, you, you avoided the wrath of God was if you took the Passover lamb and you painted it over the blood, the blood over your doorpost. God's wrath passed over you. Okay, so we had darkness and the death of the firstborn. If you want to go ahead and turn to Amos 8 for a little bit more of a, a background and prophetic fulfillment. Amos 8, and showing what Mark is trying to get across. We've been trying to show how Exodus is involved in Mark all along. If you remember the, uh, the shepherd, the promised shepherd that was in the feeding of the 5,000, um, where Jesus was the one who cared for them and fed them just like God fed them. If you remember the transfiguration where God, the people go up on the mountain, they see the glory of God revealed to them, just like in Exodus 33. Here we have a fulfillment of the punishment of Israel, the, the plagues of Israel being put upon, the plagues of Egypt being put upon Israel. So read with me in Amos 8, 9. And in that day, this is a, sorry, this is a punishment, this is God taking the the plagues of Israel of Egypt and putting them on Israel because they are not following his ways. And in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord. I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will cause everyone to wear sackcloth and every head to be shaved. I will make that grief like mourning for an only son and its outcome like a bitter day. This is the plagues of Exodus being placed on Israel and the judgment being placed on Jesus, the Passover lamb, which is made very clear in John, if you want to cross-reference that. And then Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, 
which translates, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's what I want you to talk about. I'm going to give you about five minutes, okay, amongst yourselves. How was this said? Was this said in despair? Was this said in some other way? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to use what you've known in Mark, in all the story that we've gone through so far, and I want you to answer that question. And After you've answered that question, I want you to go to Psalm 22 and read it in its entirety and see if your answer changes. Okay? So you got about five minutes talking about how this question, how this was stated, and Psalms 22, and then we'll come back. Alright guys, so give me, uh, give me some of our reflections. What, in what spirit do we think this is said? Despair. Despair. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's dying on the cross. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Any other, anyone else? Anyone? Do we think, did the Psalms reading change our mind at all about it? We're pretty hardcore on despair. Okay, then I'm excited to tell you my opinion then. (laughs) I think this psalm was not so much a cry of despair, of Jesus um, feeling that he is completely abandoned by God and that he has no hope. Okay, so we've already heard him say, I'm going to die and in three days I'm going to rise again. He knows that's not going to be the end of the story. I think him saying the words of Psalm 22 are in almost a, in a allusion to the victory that David has. So I want, I want to walk you through Psalm 22. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me at the very beginning? And then verse 6, I am a worm, not a man. I am despised by the people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads at me. just happened in the, in the, uh, the mocking the temple, his words on the temple. He says, the one who relies on the Lord, let God save him. If you're so, if you're loved by God, let God save him. And then verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my, bo- all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax within me. Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evil doors has closed in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They have divided my garments among themselves. I don't know what David was going through at the time. If there was a, a, something exactly like what Jesus was going, or maybe he was uh, inspired to um, speak to things he did not know about in the poetic language. But David ends his psalm, which Jesus alludes to as, You answered me. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him from help. And then, verse 27, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord based on what was happening in the psalm. I think Jesus said those words to make a claim on the psalm's fulfillment. That even though everything that was happening in the moment looked terrible, and it even looked like God Himself had turned away from Him, the sun itself was darkened, that that wasn't the end of the story. That there was going to be victory 
through this. And then it says, Jesus let, a, let out a loud cry, verse 37, a loud cry and breathed his last. In the Gospel of John, the words that are given to Jesus is, Tetelestai, meaning it is finished. The work that Jesus has done, all that he has been speaking and doing, has now been finished. I believe Jesus' allusion to Psalms 22 and his, lo- his loud cry are a symbol of victory and not of despair. And I think this is evident in the way, in verse 39, the centurion who is standing there, the one who was killing him, says, Surely this man was the Son of God. Throughout all the Gospel of Mark, we've had this question, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is He a prophet? Is He... Is He the Messiah? We don't really know what that means. The one person to get it right, the one human figure to see what was going on and to get it right was the very one who was killing Him at the end of His life. Just like Psalm 22, the nations are going to look and they're going to remember this. And at His death, it says... Verse 38, Then the curtain of the temple was torn top to bottom. The very thing that the Jews, that the people of Israel were accusing him, like you're going to try and destroy our temple, the very thing that they were mocking him on the cross just happened. The temple wasn't necessarily destroyed, but it was invalidated. It is now obsolete. God Himself tore the temple, the barrier between God and man, based on what had just happened on the cross. And that is why, when we're talking about the way the Christian life, we're talking about discipleship, um, we use these words like communion. Like, the very thing that the temple was designed to do, that you would go and you would worship God in the temple, um, they had to have that, that physical place is now, because of Jesus, no longer there, so that you can have communion with God in your daily lives. So once more, the question, are you going to live a gospel-centered, cross-shaped life of communion with God this fall? Are you going to live a gospel-centered life? Jesus died and is buried by a man named Joseph Arimathea. It says, this is one of those cool titles that I like to give you. It says, verse 43, a man who was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He came and he risked public opinion. He risked just putting the man who was just accused of being a traitor. Um, He buried him to give him honor because he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He's buried in the tomb, and then chapter 16, when the Sabbath was over, a group of women go looking for Jesus to pay him his last bit of respect, to pay the last respect to their dead rabbi, their failed master. And then, verse 5, it says, They saw a young man dressed in white, we can assume angel, it's a pretty safe assumption, was there sitting at the right side, 
And he said, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. And here's how it ends. Okay? Verse 8. The women went out and ran from the tomb, trembling in astonishment, having overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. That is the end of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Kind of a weird way to end, honestly, don't you think? So what is this over here? What are these uh, 9 through 20? Are they a part of it? Are they just like a, a bonus ending? Am I just lying to you? I want you to talk about that. I want you to, I want you to look at these, look at the ending. Eight, this weird, abrupt, they're afraid, they said nothing to anyone. Almost like an anticlimax. Jesus just rose from the dead and then no one said anything to anyone. And then read 9 through 20 and maybe some of the notes alongside and talk about that. Which ending are we supposed to follow here? And then we'll come back. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 9 through 20. And so you see these big brackets around the text from 9 through 20. You'll notice if you read closely certain passages in the scriptures that all of a sudden you'll go from like one verse 57 and then another verse 59. And you're like, wow, they made an error in the Bible. That's crazy. Um, they didn't. Um, you probably know this. You're very smart. Um, there were no chapters and verses originally when they were writing these letters, these narratives. Um, those were added later so that we could say, hey, everybody open up and turn to Mark chapter 16, verse 8, for helpful for us. Um, actually, what the difficult thing with Bible translation is not only did it happen 2,000 years ago, not only did some of it happen 4,000 years ago, but it was written in languages most of us don't know, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. And so there's this difficult job of trying to translate a language that isn't your first natural home language. And even if it is, the Greek that they speak today is not the same Greek that they spoke back then. And actually, they spoke many different forms of Greek. And some people spoke Aramaic as their kind of common tongue, their common language. And so the writers, they know this. They're working and actually playing with. Some of the times you'll see the writers translating the work for you, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that means this, because you don't know that language, or maybe you do, but I'm going to point it out or use this language for a specific reason. I'm using language intentionally. Um, one of my favorite things about the Bible is how creative how beautiful, how much it interweaves with each other, um, really how much the authors um, put thought into not just writing down an account, but writing down an account with a purpose and with a style and with a flair. And for some people, like, they kind of get a little nervous with that. Okay? We are very like, rigid thinkers. We're chronological. We would much rather, hey, don't, don't fill in any of the information for me. I just want you to walk through it, A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, how it happened. 
I don't need you to give me any kind of interpretation. I don't need you to try to help me um, give some kind of slant. I want you just to tell me how it happened historically, and then I'll make a judgment for myself. But that wasn't necessarily the goal for Mark. Yes, he's recording, and even if you look at the beginning of Luke, like, hey, I tried to do the very best I could to go around and see what happened with this guy named Jesus, who I personally didn't hang out with, but the guy I hang out with named Paul has seen and heard, and so the more and more I hear about Jesus, the more and more I want to help share his story for a specific audience. They had somebody in mind that they were writing this to. Mark had somebody in mind that he was writing this to, and who was that? You remember, way back, probably talked about this, May, June, I don't know. Who was it? Anybody? It's Say it again. It's Theophilus. Theophilus. That would be Luke. What about Mark? Who's Mark writing to? Who's Mark maybe quoting? Because Mark himself wasn't necessarily tagging along with Jesus, one of the twelves. Okay. Probably Mark is writing down sermons from Peter while he is in Rome. Most likely, most people uh, would say Mark is the gospel for the Roman church, and probably somewhere in the 60s AD. If you know your history very well, the Romans and the Jews didn't get along great. There was a lot of clashes over the last couple of hundred years. There was some bad blood, so they say. And there had been power grabs back and forth. The Romans, Romans loved to keep their peace at the edge of the sword. The Pax Romana was kept at the edge of the sword. And one of their favorite things to do was to humiliate anyone that tried to uprise against them. So even still today, you can go to Rome, you can go to some of the places that they had conquered, and you can see these great pieces of art. And if you look closely, it's all about how awesome Rome is and how terrible everyone else is how many times they've conquered them, how many ways they've defeated them. Because Rome loved to remind everyone how awesome they were, how great they were, how strong they were. And throughout that time period from when Jesus resurrected to when this gospel was being written and circulated, a lot of things had happened. The Jews and probably the Christians had been kicked out of Rome for a time. There were different times where they faced persecution of different kinds, not always physical, but sometimes physical. At one point there was a guy named Nero who wanted to build himself a fancy palace and so he burned down part of the city, blamed it on the Christians, and then ended up using Christians, putting oil on them and using them as lamps for the uh, gladiator games at night. Okay? Just, hey, it's a little dark out here, so let's go light up that Christian right over there with some oil. Okay? That's how we're going to watch people eating. Probably other Christians down there getting eaten by lions and bears. That's pretty crazy. So think about that. Think about living, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible for us. Think about living in a time where if I put my faith in this guy named Jesus, who I may or may not have been alive at the time when he was alive, if I do that, there's a chance I could lose my family, there's a chance I could lose my business, there's a chance I could lose my life, just for saying I'm with him, that I call him Lord when I'm supposed to call who Lord? Who are they supposed to call Lord in the Roman Empire? Caesar. He is Lord. He is the Kurios. Okay? Just for saying that. Just for saying, I'm going to give my allegiance. I'm, I'm trading my allegiance from Rome to another empire. Okay? What does that get you in Rome? Okay? That gets you this. 
That gets you burned on a stake. That gets you eaten by a lion. They don't like that. Especially, especially if you get other people to come along with you. And Jesus had people following him. And we'll talk about, maybe we'll talk about, uh, why he tried to keep that a secret early on in his ministry. Maybe you've heard the phrase at different parts of the summer. It occurs in many parts of the text, the messianic secret. Jesus casts out a demon and says, hey, stop, don't say anything about this. Blessings. Um, Jesus heals somebody and says, hey, I know I just healed you. I know I just raised your daughter from the dead. I know that was pretty crazy. I just need you not to talk about it. And they're like, yeah, okay, sure. It's this term, messianic secret. For whatever reason, Jesus is trying to get them to keep it quiet. Mark's trying to take them along on this journey in which some reason he came here to preach as the Son of God and he doesn't want people to know that he's the Son of God yet. He doesn't want them to know that yet. And so I say all of this to try to have you to somewhat get into your mind the feeling you may have had as the Roman church 2,000 years ago trying to struggle with what it means to be a Christian in that context. And here comes the gospel according to Mark. Mark, a friend of or maybe a scribe of the apostle Peter. Peter writing down and or at least preaching all these sermons, all these stories of who Jesus was and what he did. And all the while, Mark is thinking, I need, to, I need to get this to our people, to the other churches around, so the body of Christ can benefit from the good news of Jesus. Because, again, a lot of scholars would argue, that hadn't been done yet. Mark is arguably the very first person to write down and circulate the story of Jesus. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool, and in a pretty tough environment. And so, one of the reasons why I believe Mark chapter 16 ends at verse 8 is with that context in mind, and let's read this last verse again. Look at verse 8. They, the women, went out and ran from the tomb, because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Boom. Mic drop. Scroll. Scroll closed. I don't know what you did with scrolls back then. I don't know. Um, and he, tur- he, he ended it. Uh, number one, it's probably not true. It's probably not true that the women left and said nothing to no one ever. No, they probably did at some point, which is why we have part of this story, right? Mark is doing something, what's the word, ironic? He's using an irony. Jesus had just raised from the dead. Uh, They're a little skeptical after this young man in a white robe came and spoke to them, and then they themselves go and run, and they're scared. Fear plays a pretty important role in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 4, you guys actually just turn back to Mark chapter 4, Um, chapter 4 for now. We're going to kind of turn through these. You don't need to like deeply read this, but just kind of be tracing it as I go. We're going to go pretty quickly through it. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, we have the apostles, starting in verse 35 with Jesus, and a great storm comes, and they are what? What's their emotive response? Afraid. They're afraid. 
They're scared. Okay? You go get on a 15-foot boat on the Sea of Galilee when these torrential winds and rains start coming in off the coast. It's not a place you want to be. 10, 12, 15-foot waves maybe on this glorified pond which they call a Sea of Galilee, by the way. But because of the terrain around there and because of it, uh, the nature of there not being a lot of trees, especially large trees in that area, and these great valleys that would lead right into the sea, a wind could come at certain times of the year, and if you're not careful, quickly overthrow your boat. Surely the reason they're afraid, fishermen are afraid, is not because they're not comfortable on the water, but it's because they know people who have died because of this. They have friends who have died because of this. My friend Uri, who lives there still, says that every year tourists come and they think stories like this are a joke and they die on the Sea of Galilee because those things come. And so it's, it's, it's pretty normal that they're afraid here. Look at Mark chapter 5, just one chapter over. We have the story of Jesus healing um, this man who had a legion of demons in them. And you remember, Jesus sends them into the pigs, and the pigs run off the cliff, and then the pig farmers are kind of over here watching this whole thing as bystanders, and they're like, yeah, I'm freaked out by you. I'm going to ask you to leave, because I can't leave my family. Just go. They're, they're, they're terrified of this Jesus. It's not the only person who's terrified in Mark chapter 5. A woman who had been bleeding and had no ability to heal herself. Nobody had any answers for her. She was, um, had physical um, difficulty in her life. And then all she did is touch Jesus' clothes. And she's healed. And in this massive crowd where everyone's going shoulder to shoulder, Jesus feels power leave him. And he says, who touched me? Who touched me? And all their disciples are like, Everyone here, that's who touched you. All the people, all of us, that's who touched you. And the woman knows. She's like, ah, gosh, this is going to get awkward. It was me, terrified, trembling, it says. It was, it was me. Jesus knows. And listen to, listen to what he says to that woman. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. I know you're terrified. I know you're trembling. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Lastly, the synagogue leader, his daughter is sick, who he's going to find Jesus, because he knows this guy has the potential to heal him, but as he's on his way back to, the, to wherever that guy lives, it uh, comes back that the daughter had died. The daughter had already died. And Jesus says to that man, don't be afraid, only believe. And then somebody read out loud for me, Mark 5.43 uh, Casey, loud and proud. Okay, I know most of you probably don't have children yet, but your daughter dies and then is not dead anymore, you're going to start doing things. Okay, you're going to start screaming, you're going to start celebrating. I mean, they were probably already mourning quite loudly and obviously in that culture. Think about the party they were throwing. Let alone, like, you're just going to go to the coffee shop and sit around and, like, hey, my daughter resurrected from the dead last night. I don't know. What did you do? Did you watch the game? Lakers and Thunder on right now. But, yeah, my daughter resurrected. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, he probably told some people. The word probably spread. This is that messianic secret. There's the irony. You see the two things. The two things that are throughout these stories. There is fear... And there's this secret, 
And all the while, Mark is trying to get people to see who Jesus is. That's the question Alec already said. Who is Jesus? Some people begin to recognize who he is, and they're terrified. Whoa, whoa, whoa. People don't just raise people from the dead. People don't just cast out demons. People don't just tell the sea to calm down and it works. Okay, My mom's a loud lady, but that doesn't usually go down well. I can be crazy in my house and that doesn't work. Let alone the sea. How do you, how do you calm wind? How do you make waves lay down? How do you make the rain stop? Somebody can control the spiritual, the physical. He can heal bodies. That's pretty crazy. And maybe this guy is somebody different. And we could share a few different stories, but I don't want to keep you here until nine. Um, the last two I want you to read. Somebody read Mark eight thirty and Mark nine nine. Mark eight thirty. Okay, kind of look. Don't just read it actually yet. Look at the context. Mark eight thirty. Who's Jesus talking to? Peter. Okay, and then Mark 8.30, Ethan. Uh, he, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Hmm. He's talking to his disciples. Peter speaks up, and we start to see a turn in the narrative. You're the Messiah. That's who you are. You're the one that, that we've been waiting for. You're the one that's supposed to sit on David's throne. You're the one that was promised to Abraham who would bless all the nations through our nation. You're the one that was promised to uh, Adam and Eve who would crush the head of the serpent though your heel was struck. I think that's who you are. He doesn't say, no, 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 you're wrong. He says, shh, not yet. Not yet. And then chapter 9 comes and we see this transfiguration, this crazy moment which is Incredibly difficult to imagine, but Peter, James, and John, the close three, the inner circle to Jesus, are there on this mountain with Jesus, and all of a sudden, things get weird. There's these two people there that weren't there before. Jesus looks kind of trippy, and they're terrified, once again. Surprise, surprise. I, I probably would be too. Sounds like a pretty crazy moment to be part of. I know, that's true. I want to speak through it, but then I'm just going to get, like I should play with the car. Um, we could all go over there and tip it over. We, I think we're strong <laughs> enough. I think they'd get the picture. Um, we'll try to concentrate. I'm sure we can. Um, so they're on the mountain. Jesus, James, John. No. James, John, Peter, Jesus. Those four. And then two people come up. A lot of people would say, the Moses, Elijah. And they're afraid. And then Mark 9.9 says what? Who hasn't read that loves reading aloud to friends? Oh, thank you, Kylie. Mark 9.9. Until when? Until when? Until Jesus had raised from the dead. What did we just read in Mark 16, 8? Jesus had just done what? Raised from the dead. And 
So it's time. Now it's time to, to go out and tell everyone. Right? What do they do? They're quiet. For the first time, it was time to go tell everyone, to, to blurt out, this is who Jesus is. We saw him do this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And so many things, if we tried to tell you all about it, it would fill all the libraries in the world, John says. He did all these things, and he claimed these things about himself to us. And he told us to keep it quiet until this happened. It finally happened. You've got to come, well, kind of see it. But they're quiet. Mark Oh, like a master writer, like a master literary artist, I would say, turns everything on itself. He's intentional from the very start to the very end. Mark chapter 16, verse 8. When Jesus finally resurrects, he's finally shown the full deck of cards that he has of who he is, the Son of God, the one who has brought about the kingdom of God. And they are quiet. And what I think Mark is doing is he's asking the Roman church, he's asking the church of that day, and he's asking the readers today, you know what happened. You're a little afraid, and I think you even know what you're supposed to do next. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I know you're afraid but I know you know what to do. I know you've been paying attention to who I am and what I've done. What are you going to do? Are you going to be afraid? Are you going to go away in silence? Are you going to not tell anyone about who I am and what I've done? Or are you going to break Jesus' rules and go start telling everybody, kind of like they did at the very beginning from the start? And actually, they're not even breaking Jesus' rules anymore. This is, this is the time. It's all been leading up to this moment. And that's why I think he leaves it like that. He's ironic. He's intentional. He's crafting a story, and he leaves you at the edge of your seat, and it's this anticlimactic finish. I thought, huh, I thought they were supposed to do that thing that he's been kind of alluding to the entire book. Which is also why I think somebody at some point were like, gosh, this is too awkward. I am going to write 11 verses, because they knew the, chap- the verse breakdown. I'm going to write 11 more verses to make this a little itty bitty bit more neat, a little cleaner. I want to tell everybody about exactly what they're supposed to do, just in case they aren't a very good reader and haven't paid attention to the first 16 chapters with eight verses in it. Uh, textually speaking, uh, so... All of that is probably literary analysis, it's some theological analysis, but textually, um, there's also a lot of justification as to why those verses aren't included. Number one, the oldest manuscripts that we have, the the ones that are closest to the original in time, don't include verses 9 through 20. That's what your notes say. Number two, if you were to read closely in the Greek the verses 9 through 20, you may have that piece of paper. All those words that are highlighted are words you find nowhere else in Mark. Now, to be fair, that doesn't necessarily mean Mark could never have written it. You could take a chapter or 11 verses throughout the rest of his book and say, hey, look, there's two, maybe three, or oh, maybe four words that he hasn't used previously but to find 17 times where he is using words that he had never used in the previous 
16 chapters is pretty crazy. Not likely. Um, the other thing is that a lot of the newer manuscripts that do include chapters or verses 9 through 20 actually have scribal notes that say most of the manuscripts that we're copying from don't include this section. Or they have an asterisk or an obelisk that kind of signifies to the scribes who are very detail-oriented, there's something going on here that doesn't fit the rest of the book. People who know the language a lot better than me, a lot better than each of us, recognize that while this, there's too many places that this is included in manuscripts to completely keep it out, we're going to make it very obvious we don't think it's probably Mark that wrote it. And that's, I don't, I don't know how that hits you. For me, at first, when I was first learning about this, it kind of made me nervous. I don't know if that's you, like kind of, well, okay, so how can I, you can kind of go from that to how can I trust the Bible? Now that I've studied it quite a bit, it actually makes me trust it more. It shows me that there are some very smart people over the last 2,000 years which have taken painstaking detail to figure out which texts in this Bible are supposed to be here and which aren't. Now, we're not just lumping anything in there that could be in there and saying, ah, probably, or ah, maybe, or even, ah, there's a good chance. No, they want to be very certain that this is not just a collection of good writings from the first century. No, they want to make sure that this is the Word of God. That this is the message, the good news of the Son of God. And so you'll have scholars, probably even smarter than me, that would like to say, uh, that cast doubt into your mind as to the authenticity of the Bible because of things like this. But I think because of the painstaking detail many have taken, um, this only encouraged me to trust the word more. Um, There's a ton on that. If you're somebody who's really interested in textual criticism and um, Bible background stuff, I can send you some books. I can send you some resources for you to read. Um, many of us are not, and that's totally okay. Totally okay. Uh, but overall, I think Mark wants to end us with this question. Now that I've risen from the dead, and now that you know what to do, are you going to let your fear control you, or are you going to go tell people about me? Let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight, and we thank you for your word. God, it really is beautiful, and I do thank you for inspiring the writers to write it. I do thank you for holding it together for 2,000 years so we can read it in a place like Stillwater, Oklahoma in 2020. I thank you for a group of um, people who desire to study it and not just to know some facts about um, this cool piece of literary writing, um, but truly live according to what it says and truly uh, orient their lives around Jesus. I pray that we would do that. I pray that fear would not control us, that each and every day we would remember who you are and what you've done and what you're calling us to, and that your spirit would encourage us and empower us to live according to your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.